There is another scramble for the continent of Africa. This according to international media, but this time it is about the way in which those outside the continent can profit from the continent's business opportunities. According to the Business in Africa narrative report, some 70% of coverage about business in Africa is referencing, among others, China, the U.S., Russia, France, and the United Kingdom. Of course, this very skewed approach to things invariably will have a similarly skewed narrative that comes out of it. Now, we are going to be in conversation with Ms. Moki Makura, who's the executive director at Africa No Filter. This because there's a report, the African narrative report, that has now been released. Among other things that it comes out with, it says... Having analyzed some 750 million stories published between 2017 and 2021, 70% of coverage about business in Africa references foreign powers. So the question has to be, are there no stories that the media houses, SABC included, can tell about successes of the continent, particularly of an economic kind, which in turn will then translate to the socio-economic development? Further, corruption referenced in nearly 10% of stories of business in Africa and less than 1% of the coverage on business in Africa referenced the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, the biggest multilateral, regional multilateral instrument anyway as there is. It's, it's covering as many as, what, nearly 50 countries. NAFTA doesn't anywhere near reach that, nor do any of the Asian or the European agreements. So we are now going to be in conversation with somebody who we have pleasantly before hosted on our show. She's lived in London, born in Nigeria, as well as Johannesburg. She has lived, so she's quite familiar with the turf. Moki, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to SAFM. First things first, are you well? I am. Thank you. And I, yes, I am familiar with the turf. With it. I've lived in South Africa quite a long time. Well, we will gladly have you back any given time. And just for the record, I have a tag team partner this evening, Advocate Dalim Bofu, but you can call him Dali. And you don't have to say the ING part at the end. I'm pulling your leg. <laughs> Advocate Dalimbofu is a colleague in law and he's interested in some of these issues that this story is invariably going mm-hmm. to uncover. So please do anticipate his interjection from time to time with a question or two. But first things first, tell us about some of the most glaring things that the four or five year project of compiling this report has been able to confirm either a stereotype or just something which we have treated for the longest time as a blind spot that we as Africans now have to confront head on. Great. Well, thank you first for the platform. Um, The report that we did was called the Business in Africa Narrative Report because for the first time, an organization has looked at what stories, keywords, frames, um, international and um, local media use when they write about business in Africa. And there's two key things that the report sort of identified. One is that there's a lot missing in the stories that we read. And the second thing is that what is there is a little bit problematic. So so let me go back to some of the stories and the frames that are missing in the current coverage. And you sort of identified how many articles were analyzed and the period of time, it was like, I think, three years. Um, of studying, of, of, of media coverage that we analyze, and some social media. 
But the couple of things that we saw is that, you know, the first thing is that if you think about the population of Africa, the demographic, it is nearly, I think, 70% are under the age of 30. Yet what we found was a lot of the stories about business did not include youth. So what are these stories about? And, you know, the thing is that there's other research has been done that, that shows that young people are very entrepreneurial. They're creating opportunities because government isn't doing it for them. But these stories are not being reflected in the media coverage that we read about business in Africa. The other thing that we identified with, with what was lacking is that a lot of the smaller countries in Africa are not being covered. So if you think about it, there's um, Mauritius mm. is the sort of probably the most um, business friendly country on the continent. Certainly. Um, it comes first in, in, the, in the, you know, um, uh, World Bank's ease of doing business um, index in terms of African countries. But yet we see very little stories from Namibia, Botswana, Mauritius, but even the countries that do really well, there's an obsession with the big economies. And I'm going to come back to that. So that's something else we don't see. We don't see the smaller countries in there. We also don't see a lot about arts and culture. And if you think about our biggest export to the world, it is arts and culture. You know, think about Afrobeats, think about our musicians, think about Nollywood. That's what we're already known for, but that's not the, it's not being written about in terms of business. And they, in America, it's called, you know, the entertainment business. Here it's seen as, you know, culture, but it's not being covered in terms of business. And I think... Um, you know, you touched on on this other point about the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. One percent, one percent of the coverage we analyzed in both international and local media touched on that agreement. It's the single most important business opportunity for the continent. It's uniting a billion consumers. It's bringing together, you know, Africa's one market. And yet, media not covering it. And if you think about the role of media, it's to unpack and explain things, complex things like the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. Personally, I don't understand it. Where am I going to find it? You're going to look to media. Um, and I think that they have a critical role to play. So if they're not covering it, then you know I wonder about how successful this agreement will be. So those are the things that we're not seeing mm. in coverage. Um, and I can talk now about the things that we, we are seeing in the coverage that we analyze. Certainly. Um, and that, that's problematic. We certainly yeah, can go there, but Advocate Mbofu has a question that he will pose to you. So let me yield the platform to him, and then I'm quite happy for you to engage him as the direction of the conversation may go. Yes. Uh, good evening, Moki. Good evening. Yes, um, this Dali here. Yes, I, um, I find your study very interesting. I must confess I've not read the full report, but um, the, the summary that I've received is quite uh, stimulating. Now, I would like to ask this question and um, whether the issue of ownership, I'm a pan-Africanist and I believe that we should, um, you know, uh, unite the continent um, and uh, if possible have our own, when we talk about international media, there should be a player that is owned by us as Africans. Now, mm -hmm. it, how, mm -hmm. how, to what extent does the fact that we do not own any of these platforms, uh, and they're either American, British, or even Asian, um, how does that contribute to the fact that they will obviously cover 
us from their perspective and 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 cherry pick what they want to mm. to talk about rather than if we owned the platform we could then for example concentrate on the smaller countries as you correctly point out yeah i mean i think the important thing that we need to i um stress is that this report covered both international and local media mm-hmm. so we weren't just looking at what you know new york times CNN. or you know cnn or bbc mm-hmm. we were also looking at what safm mm-hmm. what you know the the business report you know you know africa business times we looked at local and international Good. and what we found particularly with the local because there's a data point in there that actually a lot of the stories in local media about african business Actually, you included um, corruption. There's a lot of use of the word corruption, so a mm. lot of framing around. They were covering corruption stories. So, mm. the one thing I want to be clear about, because you know, we're in this business of checking narratives. So, the first thing that people assume is that it's international global media that's responsible for the narrative. Mm. And we actually did another report called "How African Media Covers Africa." What we discovered was actually African media were equally complicit in the image the perception the narrative about africa mm. as much as global media was there's one way of reporting news often and it's often they highlight the negative if it bleeds it leads and african media really they were they they're as complicit as, as global media that much i'll say well that's uh, very very interesting that means that then the even the african media mimics the style and content of um of of the the so called global players um Absolutely. W- w- Absolutely. yeah well you know i used to be the ceo of a certain media house <laughs> <laughs> certain big media house in in the continent but um and and those were the kinds of issues i think when we established a news uh, channel what what do you think can be done particularly about the local angle of 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 ensuring that it counters the global narratives Well, look, I, I think there, there are two things. One of one of the issues is that how you know South African media covers South African business is one thing, mm. but how South African media covers business in the rest of Africa is another. Mm. What we've realised is that most South African media outlets, and I'm sure you found this from your media, like you don't have correspondents mm. in 53 other countries, Absolutely. so you are entirely dependent on getting news from the international news wires mm. so Reuters mm. AFP mm. you know in some cases you're copying stories from the BBC or or you know Al Jazeera yeah. so there is another hand writing those stories so you're you're mm. dependent on the information you get so that's what we found that you know if you're sitting in Nigeria in South Africa reading business news or any kind of news about Nigeria or Ghana believe me it is coming from an international i.e. western source wow that's the one thing The second thing is that if you are sitting in South Africa reading South African business news, those stories are being written by local journalists who come out of journalism school predominantly trained in one way. Mm. Most journalists are trained to look for the negative. Yeah. They're trained to, you know, write, you know, increasingly now short and short stories that don't have the depth of analysis. Um, they're not. They don't have the time because of newsroom constraints, because of you know fewer people, you know, writing the stories. So they're looking for quick fixes. Some of these stories, some of the trends, and in fact, the report that we've just done highlights over 30 trends that are un, 
investigated by journalists mm. because it's the usual stories it's the global brands doing stuff it's the fintech companies there's a whole bunch of stories that they 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 do but there's a bunch that they don't do and that's because a they don't have a time probably not as well trained as older journalists were in the old days mm. um and you know and i think right now there is this thing about everybody's trying to capture the youth audience or this audience that doesn't really have time to read anything in depth so it's it's it, it, it's eroding journalism generally that's my personal belief that's not in the report but i but i do think that the problem is that the way journalist journalism works right now it's not conducive for in-depth stories it doesn't give you time to explore new angles you know your editors don't really care they just want the usual stories that they they, they think people want so you know there's work that needs to be mm. done but mm. we identify in the report you know some trends that if you're a journalist that you know you're interested in putting out different stories there's a whole bunch of trends that we I, I you know ask you to to investigate further and come up with stories plus we also give you a bunch of questions that we think you should ask yourself when you're about to sit and write a story like if you're writing a story about tech you know about um i don't know cryptocurrency which countries are you referencing because mm. it'll be the same it's always nigeria and south africa you know mm. kenya what about the other countries so you know we we challenge you to sort of push yourself a little bit mm. you know and there's a whole bunch of questions in the report so we're not just saying oh here's the data we're actually saying well here's how you can change the Certainly. narrative around the stories you write can, can i just on that last point i mean here are two lawyers who have both one previously one currently operated in at least at some point what would have been the biggest broadcaster on the continent the sabc dali is a former mm -hmm. ceo of the sabc mm -hmm. so these things are quite attached to him here i am operating in a journalistic space without the journalistic mm -hmm. training both of i mr Bofu mm -hmm. and i are both lawyers and i'm just trying to establish the value or harm or the combination of the two of having people trained in particular professions who are then perhaps in a better position, open, close quote, better position to tease out the nuances associated, say, with law, politics, governance, and matters incidental thereto with our legal background so that we can get to the deeper issues, perhaps that one trained broadly in journalism, not necessarily won't, but may not. In other words, the skill set that has to occupy the journalistic space so that we can get mm. these narratives out that much quicker, that much more broadly. So in other words, if we're talking about law and how it has affected mm. um, the African continent, somebody like Advocate Mbofu would be in a position to do that because his practice takes him mm. outside the country. He's dealing with these very issues at high level where perhaps a journalist might not. I just want you from your perspectives as a journalist, one who has sort of gone through the continent as you have in television and in print media and in radio and the like, where perhaps the balance should be established in these media outlets and especially contemplating the role of social media to get news that much quicker to the people where perhaps the time to reference a story comes in mm -hmm. after a narrative has already been established because social media beat them to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I, I think it's an, it's an interesting, you know, dilemma. And, you know, with all due respect to, to both of you as lawyers who know your stuff, I do think that the role of journalism is very different. What I'm increasingly seeing now in media 
is opinion, not reporting. And if you think about when you listen to, I mean, let's look at the Ukraine coverage now, Mm. you know, you have journalists who are standing there telling you what they think. They're not reporting facts. And that's originally what news was. News has shifted. It's become about opinion. So now we're looking to advocate to tell us what he thinks Mm. about this. Um, And we can't confuse that with news. You know, news is very straightforward. It's about objective reporting. And we know that that is very difficult now. So media takes sides. I mean, I'll talk about international media because I don't want to talk about local media. Mm. So, Mm. you know, we saw during the U.S. um, elections, you know, CNN was staunchly on on Trump's side. You know, Fox News was, um, sorry, CNN was on Biden's (laughs) side and and Fox News was staunchly on Trump's side. Mm. You know, so, you know, media is now partisan. It's supposed to be objective. You know, the fourth estate, they're supposed to be independent sort of reporters of events. And what I see increasingly is that we are moving to where media has got a personality, media's got an opinion. It's not news. Um, and, as, and that's why we're, you know, we're beginning to see this rampant sort of growth of misinformation and disinformation and a new genre of that, which is no information. If you look at, you know, RT that's been taken off the air. You know, so I think it's not just about you know, who's telling the news anymore. It's about what who, what is the, the morals, the values, you know, the, the politics of the people telling the news. Yes. Th- thank you, Maki. It's Dali here again. You've touched on a subject that I really wanted to tease out uh, from you. The You know, the current situation, I know that your study was done before the war, but... Um, Mm. You know, the, 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 this issue of, you know, it ties up with what you're saying about uh, so-called Afro-pessimism and the negative reports mm. about, about Africa. Can you imagine what would have happened if there was a war in Africa and one of the <laughs> parties closed down a, 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 a television station? It would be, oh, those Africans mm. again, the dictatorships and so on. And now we have mm-hmm. RT closed. They have not bombed anybody. They simply are bringing a different narrative. And um, you know, mm. the world kind of accepts this as, as a, a patriotic duty of uh, these uh, freedom-loving people. Mm. What, what, so, what so do you make of mm. that? Uh, I mean, coupling it with, with your experiences of, 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 of how Africa is, is covered. I mean, can one postulate as to what would have happened if this closure was done by Nigeria or, you know, any other African country. Just for quick context, you might have missed it then, Moki, sorry. Mm. What what has happened, for instance, in South Africa, RT is no longer broadcast. Mm. The Mm. outlet that Mm. usually houses RT, Russian television, Mm. is no longer broadcasting it. There hasn't been a reason that has been made official. We don't know when it will be coming back. And I think that question ties to the fact that narratives are created even though they don't necessarily exist because mm. what Budali is suggesting here RT, okay fine has a narrative, let's accept that but CNN has a similar narrative BBC, Sky, mm. everybody has a narrative so why should one narrative be preferred over others? That's essentially the core of the question No, I, I absolutely agree and, and that's the point I was making that you know there's this information, this information and no information that's mm. you know where we are to a certain extent but what, what I will just clarify Bongani is that um multi-choice or DSTV explained that they did not shut down RT. It's the distributor who provides that channel, who's based in Europe, shut it down. 
informational wars, media wars, propaganda has always been a tool of war. We're just seeing it on a, you know, I guess more visceral level now. Mm. You know, if this had happened in Africa and you, you know, Africa, well, you, when you say if this has happened, this has happened many, many times in Africa, mm. you know, where media is shut down, where the internet itself mm. is, is shut down, you know, in Ethiopia, through, you know, the Tigray, there are times when I, I've been personally in Ethiopia where the internet's been shut down. Information war, access to information has always been a tool of war. Mm. And I think that it's expected that it will happen in Africa. Yes. That's the difference. Why we are so kind of in awe and amazed is that this is happening in Europe. And I don't know if you saw, there was a whole, you know, Twitter hmm. war around the, the nature of the racism oh. in the coverage yes. of this war. Yeah, I mean, I actually wrote a piece, an opinion piece on it um, about how badly um, you know, the, the war has been covered, you know, things like this the deputy governor of, of Ukraine saying he's emotional because he's not used to seeing people with blonde hair and blue yes. eyes yes. in this sort of situation. Mm. You know, absolutely, you know, it, it, I think the war, in fact, it was the same during COVID when, you know, students in China were thrown out, African mm. students in China were thrown out of their accommodation for fear that they had COVID. I mean, the irony of that situation, knowing where COVID came from. But the point is that, you know, it's not necessarily the media that's racist, it's the people who are telling the news mm. that are racist. Mm. And what we know is that there's not enough diversity in a lot of these global newsrooms. So the people who are telling the news themselves are often, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed or whatever. Mm. Mm. So their lens on life is slightly racist. I mean, you know, you know, the, the, my attitude to this is that sometimes as Africans, we put ourselves in positions where we don't have power. Yes. And when I joined this call, I heard you talking about, you know, the reason why white people feel they're, you know, superior is because, mm. you know, they have economic power. Mm. You know, as long as Africans continue to sub subjugate ourselves and we're not in powerful positions, we're not the decision makers, yes. there will be racism. It's the nature of people. Um, but we seem to be going down a far more philosophical path than the Business in Africa um, narrative report. But um, Let, Let's go back yeah. there because, I mean, there's a sense of erasure <laughs> in the context of the reporting on the continent. Can we focus on the fact that, as you correctly pointed out, nearly 70% of the continent is defined as youth under the age of 35, mm. and the majority of those mm. people are women. Now, how do we ensure that essentially the future of the African continent, young girls, young women, get their fair share of the narrative mm. that comes out of that. We can't always be hearing, important as these issues are, about female mu um, genital mutilation, whereas we are not hearing mm. about the increased rate of access into facilities and spaces of education, the innovation mm. that women are behind, the fact that in many African societies, women are the backbone of those economies, not mm. just in primary economic activity, but if you look at the case study of the nation of Rwanda, what they have done in the same period mm. of South Africa and how they have been able to turn that narrative around, that the country is what it is. How do we ensure mm. there are so many more pockets and examples reported on so that we can unearth more of the Rwanda sort of examples that the continent has in abundance. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's an, an excellent point you're making. Um, you know, it's like lack of economic empowerment. So you have to force it. You have to force the issue. It doesn't happen naturally. You know, if you think about, you know, we just had International Women's Day um, and I spoke about narratives about African women um, in the media. African women or women generally are underrepresented in media. And if you think about it, you know, there was a study done on, you know, voices during COVID and it found that, you know, of all the people that were asked to comment on COVID, they were all men. And it was something like for every um, five men that commented, you had one woman who commented. So women are not being asked for opinion. They're not being brought on to speak on things. And often this report said that when women were, they were usually the sort of victim mode. It was like, oh, here's a woman who's, whose family died of COVID as opposed to here's the expert who's going to tell you why vaccines are important. So again, it goes to who's running the newsrooms. We need more women in positions of power who are making these decisions. We need more young people in positions of power who are making these decisions because it seems that the sort of the, the traditional order, which is sort of white male at the top, black male, you know, older men, they're not seeing this opportunity or they're threatened by it or it's not happening. You know, how many panels have I been on where, you know, we're talking about youth, yet none of us on that panel are under 35, yet we're talking about youth, right? You know, I, I see it a lot. Um, you know, we're seeing now where, you know, there used to be this thing that we call the manals where every single speaker on the panel was a male. That doesn't happen anymore because people have been outing people you know, I always say, if you see something, say something. If you see, you know, that there are no young people on this, you know, thing that's supposed to be about youth, say something. Brands want, don't want to be embarrassed. Organizations don't want to be embarrassed. And that's how you change things. And then you legislate for it. There should be a policy that tells, um, you know, media outlets, for example, that, you know what, you have to have at least 50% of the people featured in your stories, women, and I think the BBC in the UK has come up with something called 50-50, which means that for every story they put out, at least 50% of the people in the story need to be, you know, um, women. And I'll tell you, one journalist actually did um, some research. He said that for him to get to that 50-50, he worked 15 minutes harder on every story. In other words, it takes time and it takes effort. A lot of people don't want to put in the effort. And the only way you're going to change things is to force it. Uh, yes, Moki. I, I was quite interested to to read the comments made by uh, Richard Eddy, the, the author of the report, um, particularly when he says, um, narratives, frames, and stories are the lenses through which we perceive and experience Africa. They inform mm -hmm. beliefs, behavior, and mm -hmm. ultimately dictate policy. I think that's a very powerful mm -hmm. truth right there. Absolutely. Now, the, the, uh, to put it back to the, the, the issue that we were talking about of the war. Now, you know, when narratives dictate policy, isn't that exactly what we experience? For example, with the, the coverage of the war in Libya or the invasion of Libya, mm -hmm. let me not even call it a war, mm -hmm. when Gaddafi was, was murdered. Um, mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. that war is, it was about, against, you know, this brutal person and all that who had to be hunted down and killed. Mm -hmm. And um, 
but this war is suddenly about oh the poor old person and the child and the dog and the, mm. and, mm. and so on and <laughs> you know and therefore that actually I, I've never seen a war that's covered it's with this kind of of of, of uh, humaneness and you know how this one mm. uh, one somebody was drinking coffee and then they dropped their coffee <laughs> I mean here the bombs are flying all over but in Libya apparently there are no mm. old people and there are no children and there are no dogs yeah it's just bombs and uh, and they get their comeuppance what do we do about this well I, i think it's important to understand why it happens because when you look at you know coverage of africa it's africa is covered in terms of issues oh. right if you think about the last story about africa it was the six coups that we had in five countries in 18 months yes. right it was covered as a trend in fact i think the head of the un called it um i can't remember the phrase he used as an epidemic of mm. coups in mm. africa in if you think about the length of your average story in a newspaper it's about 500 words mm. if in 500 words you're going to cover six coups that means they're giving each coup less than 100 words how are you going to write about the person with coffee or the old woman or the dog you, we we don't give ourselves enough space there's not enough interest and it, you know what there is a narrative there is a single narrative about africa that we like africa is broken it's a problematic place they're dependent on western donors and they lack agency to make change that's the narrative that's a single story the story about europe and this particular war and why it's being covered like this is two reasons one is that media have to simplify simplify the story and the narrative and the narrative in this ukraine war is that putin is the big bad person Monster. he's like hitler he's mm. marching into yeah. another country mm. we we haven't explored the reasons why whether they're not they're valid or not and he's mentally disturbed is, yeah. <laughs> he's mental yes exactly and he's a power broker he's the next hitler mm. and you know he's an evil person that's the narrative putin is evil russia is wrong mm. and in that narrative ukraine is right and ukraine are the victims and when you tell a story of victims what do you do you show them suffering mm. that's exactly what this is about in order to perpetuate and fill the narrative that you know we, we we've been told to believe or that's been created by media where ukraine is a victim in order to show the victim status you've got to show victims suffering and that's what the stories are all about nobody cares about <laughs> africa nobody cares about us and whether we're suffering because that's no. not the narrative of, no. for africa all they want to know is that you know oh yes africa's broken there've been you know so many coups that's the kind of thing that happens in africa so it, it, that, that's why narrative is actually really important because it does inform your opinion and if you think if i right now actually to both of you if i said what do you think of somalia mm, absolutely i don't know if you i've not been to somalia before mm. if i ask you what you think you're going to call on everything you've ever read mm. listened to you know about somalia and chances are it's bound, you know it's probably come from an article it's come from the news and that's why media is so important because it actually informs people's opinions of countries of places of things yes you know that we experience the world through media you know so if i've never been to somalia and you ask me i'm going to have an opinion about somalia but i got it from the bbc or i got it from cnn mm. you know and that's the danger because it informs my behavior 
or it informs my opinion, my opinions inform my behavior. And if I'm in a position of power, my behavior informs whether or not I create a policy, policy that says, absolutely. you know, Somalia, hmm. that, that's a war-torn country. No, we're not going to give any aid because we don't believe that you know, people there have anything, to, you know, have any time to actually run a country. So we're going to cut it off. It does because, you know, the policymakers themselves, they don't live in a vacuum. I'll you know, tell you so, what, Moki, next time you are in Johannesburg, one, we owe you coffee. Dali will pay. He's the senior. There's a protocol in law. <laughs> yes. But more importantly, and quite in line with quite a fundamental of this very conversation, we have an institution here on this very show. That's why Dali is here. He's a guest of the show, so to speak. But we offer a platform mm. called the Tuesday Takeover, where we get people from various descriptions of life, and not just within the South African borders, to come and mediate conversations. Why? I'm quite alive to the fact that I can't always be on top of every subject matter and lead and moderate a debate mm. or discussion on that. And precisely for the reasons that you have advanced, both in terms of perspectives, narratives, women, and the fact that there are so many more issues within this report that haven't been covered. Could you please mm. confirm now to my audience that next time you're in South Africa, you will come to SAFM and you will host a show much in the same way and vein <laughs> that Advocate Mbofu has? precisely for the reasons that you have lamented as not happening enough on the continent. Absolutely. But I confess I live in Johannesburg. So, you know, you're going to have to give me that coffee much sooner than you think. Great. Advocate Mbofu heard that. <laughs> he's smiling. He's going to pay. <laughs> yeah, and it's going to um, happen sooner than you think even, I promise. Thank you so much, Moki. Much appreciated. Um, and we certainly will have you on the platform because the appreciation equally from our listeners is great and we certainly do appreciate your time thank say you. goodbye to dali and right. then we'll be out thank you so much Cheers. good to meet you both thank Bye. you good to meet you that was the Tuesday Takeover with Advocate Dalim Bofu and the most recent conversation, African No Filters Executive Director, Ms. Moki Makura, who confirms she lives here in Johannesburg. Best believe she will be here very soon. But before that, an appropriate cup of coffee. Good night, everyone. <laughs>